Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra, and I am back in the podcast closet, back in my element, as you can see, uh, if you are watching on YouTube. If you're listening, welcome as well. Happy you guys are here. Uh, I'm excited to be bringing you guys a story today. This story was listener requested. Keep those requests coming. I love that you guys are doing that. It means the world. We are going to be doing something a little bit different today because this is not a mystery story. It is a true crime case, which I cover true crime cases as well, but typically they are unsolved or there's some type of mysterious element to it. And in this case, there really isn't, but that's absolutely fine. I'm happy to cover requests. We will get into that in just a little bit, but we're at the top of the show, so a couple of housekeeping things to cover as always. First and foremost, if you like what you've been hearing on the podcast or you like what you've been seeing on the YouTube channel so far, I know the video formats are really new, but you know, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, and help a girl out drop a five-star review, please. It's so easy, and it is like the number one way that you can help support the podcast. It makes a huge difference. You guys have no idea. Thank you in advance for that. If you guys want to send topic requests for me, or you have a crazy story to share, you can DM me on Instagram, or you can email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail. The Instagram is perplexitymysterypodcast, as is the YouTube channel and my TikTok. So check all those out. Uh, I've been getting some requests through the Instagram and my email, so that's really cool. Thank you guys so much for doing that. If you missed last week's episode, definitely go back and check that out. I also wanted to say hello to Kenya because we have some new listeners in the country of Kenya. That is so cool. So hi, Kenya. Thank you guys so much for listening. Perplexity now has listeners in 16 countries, which is just insane to say out loud. And it means so much to me. It's all thanks to you guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you big trigger warning for today's episode, okay? This episode is a true crime case, and we are going to be covering some very heavy topics, such as sexual assault and violence, rape, murder, of course, uh, torture. So everyone, please be advised of those things. This episode may not be for you, and listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. All of the sources for today will be available in the show notes. I will be mentioning some throughout the episode, but please check out those show notes to learn more. This story was requested by a listener named Amanda. Thank you so much, Amanda, for reaching out. I love hearing from you guys. I got a lovely email from her. I'm not going to read the whole email because it's going to give away the story. But she did say, Good evening. I just started listening to your podcast a few weeks ago, and I'm really enjoying it. Julia actually recommended this to me because I like spooky stuff. Julia is someone that I went to high school with. So, really cool. And then she went on to say, I really appreciate how considerate you are when talking about true crime stories and taking time to talk about the victims and who they were and not making them another number. Anyway, story request. 
So then she requested the story, gave me details, and she said, love to see where you are able to take this. So thank you so much, Amanda, for writing in, and without further ado, let's get into it. I got a lot of information from the 1983 book by Anne Rule called The Want Ad Killer. And this is also the same author who wrote the book, The Stranger Beside Me, if you're familiar with that book. So highly recommend checking this book out if you want to learn more about this case. Today, we are going to be talking about a horrible, horrible, depraved person named Harvey Kerrignan. Harvey Lewis Kerrignan was born in Fargo, North Dakota on May 18, 1927. His birth mother had him out of wedlock, which, as we know, in the U.S. is still heavily stigmatized, but especially back during this time period, he was seen as a bastard, and this seemed to really affect him psychologically. There isn't much known about Harvey's biological father, besides the fact that he was a medical intern, and he stayed around for about the first year of Harvey's life, but then he left. Later, Harvey had a stepfather, and the stepfather stayed around for a little bit while he was a toddler, but then he left as well. And this will be a very common theme throughout Harvey's childhood. So he clearly did not have a good father figure in his life. He also grew up during the Great Depression, so very tough time throughout the U.S. And his mother was barely 20 during this time period, so this is the 30s at this point. And his mom had tons and tons of difficulty supporting Harvey, her other son, and of course herself. Now, this is just Harvey's perception of things, but according to him, his mother was pretty mean. Harvey was also small, skinny, and he was labeled as a nervous child. He had failure to thrive, and he also had some behavioral issues. He started to have noticeable tics, which were later diagnosed as chorea, which is a medical condition that causes uncontrollable body movements, and his chorea seemed to be primarily in his arms, legs, and face. But when he was stressed, the chorea would actually flare up more severely. He also was known to wet the bed throughout his childhood, And this would persist way longer than it should have. You know, he was potty trained and it continued for years and years throughout his childhood. He also had very large gaps in his memory, which is known to commonly be associated with trauma. Harvey did say that during his childhood, he was sexually abused by several adult women, including a family relative, one of his babysitters, and some other adults, which we'll talk more about later, but all of these were allegedly females. He at one point recalled being, quote, smothered by an adult woman's breasts and genitals, end quote. With his behavioral issues and persistent bedwetting, when Harvey was around 10 years old, he was sent away to live with his aunt and uncle in Cavalier, North Dakota. So he was obviously upset about this, felt rejected by his mother, but eventually he settled in with his aunt and uncle and he started to feel at home there and perhaps he had finally found something good. But this, of course, did not last and eventually they got tired of his bedwetting and his behavioral problems and they essentially didn't know what to do with him, just like his mom. 
So at this point, he was forced to leave his aunt and uncle's home, and he did return to live with his mother and stepfather. This lasted for only a few months, and then he went to live with another relative, his grandmother, in Minnesota. This also did not last, and then he went to live with another aunt. So we're seeing a common theme here. This is when Harvey started to act out more and run away from his home. At one point, he ran back to live with his mother, and he also started committing petty crimes such as stealing. Harvey continued to be very quiet and shy into his adolescent years, except when he was angry. When he was angry, he would often lash out at people and say mean things, and he had a lot of difficulty socializing. His career goes throughout his entire life. He has all these behavioral problems. He's been rejected. He's not good at socializing. It makes sense. He had a very hard time making friends, and this could also be because of the fact that he was moving around so much from relative to relative. He didn't really have time to sit in one place and build relationships. So he continued to bounce from home to home because of this, but all he wanted ultimately was to be able to live with his mother. So the next time that he went to live with her, his mother actually tried to put him in an orphanage. And from what I could find, she tried to put him in an orphanage at least twice. She eventually ended up putting him in a reform school in Mandan, North Dakota. And he stayed at this reform school for seven years until he turned 18, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because he was institutionalized throughout the remainder of his childhood. He never experienced a normal childhood. And during this time, Harvey was also allegedly sexually abused by female teachers at the reform school. So he turned 18 in 1945 and signed up to join the U.S. Army. By this point, Harvey had grown taller, he had rounded out, and he was a big guy. He became really well known for his insane strength and inhumanly large forearms. People described him as a pretty scary dude, really bad temper. He had forearms, as people would say, like a gorilla. Flashing forward to 1949, just four years later, it seems like Harvey's behaviors escalated. He was living in Anchorage, Alaska at this point, still working in the Army. He was a soldier, and he was stationed at Fort Richardson. He's 22 years old. It is the evening of Sunday, July 31st, 1949. A man named John Keith, a local resident of Anchorage, was walking towards his home shortly after 9 p.m. It was a little over one month since the summer solstice, but there was still some daylight. And John Keith was walking towards his home, then he heard a sound coming from a park nearby. It sounded like it could be a cry for help from a woman. So John Keith is immediately concerned, and he starts to walk towards the source of the noise. When he gets closer to the sound, he eventually notices a couple, a man and a woman, lying together in the grass. This is when Keith realizes that he may have just caught a couple in the act, being intimate. So Keith is, of course, super embarrassed and, you know, did not mean to do this. He just thought this woman might have needed help, but he realized he must have been wrong. 
So he turns around to go back to his house, but at this point, the man that's in the couple has already spotted Keith. And this man was not happy. So the man stands up really fast and storms towards him and starts yelling at Mr. Keith and tells him to move on, get out of here, you know. John Keith would later describe this angry man to be large with a slightly receding brown hairline, but he appeared to be young in his early 20s. He would also say that this man made him feel very uncomfortable. And he had just this feeling in his stomach that something was wrong that he couldn't shake, even the next morning. So early the next morning, John Keith is getting ready for work, and he has this sinking feeling like he needs to go back to the park where he saw that couple last and basically investigate, see if he can put any information together from the surroundings on what could have happened there. So he walks back to the park, and this is where John Keith stumbles upon a woman lying face down in an empty lot. This was the exact same spot that the couple had been in the night before. And he recognized the woman as well. The man from last night was nowhere to be found. And John Keith, concerned, calls out to the woman, but there's no response. So he gets closer, and this is when he realizes that the woman is partially nude. Her clothing appeared to be ripped, and her face was swollen and purplish-black. So Keith immediately notifies the Anchorage police, and they come, and investigators are looking around. And this is when they quickly conclude that this woman is unfortunately dead. She was in full rigor mortis at this point. Her limbs were stiff and cold. And the pathologist would later determine that this woman died sometime the evening before, with the cause of death being severe brain damage from some type of bludgeoning. Her face was severely disfigured from her chin to her forehead. Her facial bones had been crushed, and it appeared that the woman had been beaten to death, not by a blunt force object, but by fists. So basically, the closer they looked, they realized, oh, this is a severe beating, but it couldn't have been a blunt force object. And then they were able to determine someone beat this poor woman to death with their bare hands. So horrifying. Bruising was also found on the woman's inner thighs and genitalia, which would indicate sexual assault, uh, although no signs of penetration were found. No semen was recovered and no blood aside from the victims was found either. This woman would later be identified as 57-year-old Laura Irene Shaw Showalter. Laura had not returned home on the night of July 31st and relatives and friends were concerned. They would later be the ones to identify her. John Keith was able to give the police the description of the man, the same description I told you guys earlier. But the case would remain cold for a couple of months. I also, before I go any further, I want to preface this by saying I really tried to find information about the victims in this story, you know, who they were, what their lives were like, because I think that that's really important. But I could not find hardly anything so I'm going to try my absolute 
best to give some humanity, some dignity for these victims. And I just want to preface this by saying that that is very important to me. And I hope you guys recognize that as I continue to tell this story. So on the morning of Friday, September 16th, 1949, there was a young woman named Dorcas Callan who was confronted by a soldier in Anchorage near a tavern. It's pretty early in the morning, and this man is clearly very intoxicated. He asked Dorcas to take a ride with him, but she declined. And the man continued to harass her, and Dorcas became very scared. Dorcas knew about the murder of Laura Showalter, and that had just happened a few weeks prior. So she's scared, and the soldier, when get when he gets rejected, becomes very angry. And he grabs Dorcas and starts dragging her towards the street. The man then forced Dorcas into a ditch beside the road where he climbed on top of her and tore at her clothing. He assaulted her, and then he raped her. Somehow, after this goes on for some time, Dorcas did manage to escape. She ran to the tavern. She was bruised and bleeding. And she reported the attack to Anchorage police. She was able to give them an accurate description, down to the deep dimple on her attacker's chin. Harvey was known by the police to often be in this area and be very intoxicated. So the police tracked him down and picked him up. It's pretty incredible, too, that Dorcas was able to get away from Harvey because everyone who knew Harvey would always point out how insanely strong he was. In fact, one friend would later tell police that when Harvey got angry, he was known to pick up the front of his pickup truck and slam it back down. Which, what are you doing? (laughs) I also found some reports that apparently the same day Harvey attempted to rape another woman named Christine Norton, but was unsuccessful. So Harvey gets picked up and taken to a police lineup, and Dorcas and John Keith were both able to identify him. Dorcas gave her official statement to the police, and they quickly noticed similarities between her report and the evidence surrounding Laura Showalter's recent murder. Both women had been approached on a weekend day. Both men were large, young, and with brown hair. So this was enough to charge Harvey and keep him in prison for a while. And this is where it gets a little bit murky, but from the sources I read, it sounds like Harvey was interrogated in Anchorage by a marshal for the rape and assault of Dorcas, as well as the murder of Laura Showalter. And when they started questioning him about Laura, he got defensive. But he eventually agreed to talk with them He requested first that he wanted to talk to a priest, though. So he basically said, fine, I'll talk to you guys. I'll tell you what happened. But first, let me talk to a priest. So the marshal agrees and they bring in a priest. And this would take several hours. So Harvey talks to the priest for hours. And after that, he came out. He requested several pencils and a pad of paper and he started writing. Harvey wrote for eight entire hours. Then he requested to speak with the priest again. So I'm sure at this point, the marshal is sick of this guy. He's pissed, but you know, what are you gonna do? You've gotta get information from him. So again, the marshal agrees, 
brings the priest back, and the priest talks to Harvey for about another hour. So this is when he finally hands over his official written statement to the police. Harvey was able to provide a detailed description of him being in the area and drinking on the day of Laura Showalter's murder. But there was never any mention of the murder. So for eight hours, Harvey's just lottie dying on this paper, writing about what the day looked like, where he went, how much he drank, where he drank, and what he did, you know, in the evening throughout the whole day, except he conveniently left out the part involving Laura Showalter and the murder. Also, every time that Harvey met with the marshal who was interrogating him, Harvey would get really nervous. He would start to sweat. His chorea would exacerbate, so he would shake and move more and more. And eventually, he did verbally confess to the murder of Laura Showalter. So, in 1950, Harvey was charged with first-degree murder. He was very worried about getting the death penalty. He did not want that at all, especially hanging. So, he was one of those criminals that was very scared to die. He was tried and sentenced to death by hanging, but in 1951, he appeals this, and basically what ends up happening is his sentence gets commuted due to a wrongfully obtained confession. So it turns out that during the confession, Harvey had verbalized his fear to the marshal of getting the death penalty. And he basically asked the marshal what he could do to avoid getting the death penalty. And the marshal assured him there hadn't been a hanging there in 25 years, essentially telling him that there was no chance that he would be getting the death penalty or being get uh, a hanging. After telling him this, Harvey conveniently became much more compliant and began to provide information. So that's a problem. <laughs> Also, apparently there was no testimony that the confession was obtained voluntarily. So, the entire time, all those hours I just described to you, so this was over the span of like 12 hours that all this interrogation was going on, right? And the writing of the statements. That entire time, not a single detective, police official, marshal, they didn't take any notes. They didn't create any type of proof or documentation that Harvey's confession was obtained willingly. <laughs> oh my god. So, Harvey's confession gets thrown out. This is why it is so important to do shit by the book, people. And it's really not that hard. You know, Miranda is the suspect. If they ask for a lawyer, get them a lawyer and stop asking them questions. And for God's sake, don't make promises that you can't keep. Take notes. Record. These are very basic things that are taught to police officers. I, I don't understand. But I've heard stories like this, and I'm sure y'all have too. We've heard stories like this so many times, and it's frustrating because it's lazy police work. That's all it is. I'm sorry. It's it's lazy. And when you don't do this shit by the book, really dangerous people like Harvey Kerrigan 
can be released from prison. And this is also going to make the police look bad, which will cause more work for you in the long run. So just, I don't know, do your job? Okay. I need to calm down. <laughs> okay, we're back. Basically, they still had enough to keep him in prison for a while. He was transferred to Alcatraz in 1952, and he stayed there till 1960. On April 2nd, 1960, Harvey Kerrigan was released on good behavior, which I feel like if you go to Alcatraz, you should never be allowed to leave. <laughs> like, that is where the worst of the worst people went. And going back to the good behavior thing, of course he was behaving well. He wasn't around women. Shocker. He behaves well around men. That's not how it works. So he gets released, and just a few months later, Harvey was arrested again for burglary, assault, and attempted rape in Minnesota. He was tried, but only imprisoned for four years and released again on March 2nd, 1964. This is when he relocated to Seattle, Washington. But the same year he moved to Seattle, he was arrested again for burglary. He was sentenced to 15 years in Walla Walla State Prison. And during this time in prison, he actually got his high school diploma and took some college courses. Wow, good for him. He was supposed to serve 15 years but he only ended up serving four. And so he was paroled in 1968. It's so weird. It's almost like prison isn't rehabilitating him. Wow. So Harvey would later admit during this time period in his life, he felt like his youth had been stolen from him and hence why he began to develop an attraction for teenagers. So Harvey keeps on keeping on being his terrible self and somehow he manages to land himself a woman a wife this woman's name was Sheila and Harvey got married in 1969 he's still living in Seattle and this woman Sheila has a daughter as well Sheila was not familiar with Harvey's background during the marriage, Harvey was also known to have this ragtag group of people that would spend time with him all hours of the day uh, and night. I assume he was drinking throughout this time as well. He would also frequently leave in the middle of the night for long periods of time and not tell Sheila where he was going. Harvey didn't have a car, so he would just take Sheila's car and go on these little joy rides in the middle of the night. And he would claim he just needed to be alone and think. Which is annoying, and I don't believe that that's all he was doing when he was out driving, you know. But <laughs> to make things even worse, he would be out so late that he would sometimes leave Sheila stranded at home when she needed to drive to work in the morning. So that same year, Harvey was arrested yet again for violating his parole for another robbery. So he goes to prison for one year in Walla Walla, and he is 43 years old at this point. And Sheila waited for him 
the year that he was in prison. But when Harvey got released from prison, Sheila quickly divorced him due to physical abuse. On April 14th, 1972, Harvey has clearly moved on from Sheila because this asshole gets married yet again. This time he got married to a woman named Alice Johnson. Also, I'm not sure if this was the exact time, but I know around this time period he ended up in Minnesota, like back in Minnesota again. And this is when he left the army and he was working in construction. The woman he married, Alice Johnson, had two children, including an 11-year-old son named Billy and a 14-year-old daughter named Georgia. Alice was, without shock, physically abused by Harvey, as well as her two children, Billy and Georgia. The abuse was so bad that Billy ended up having to leave home and go live with his biological father. I also found some sources that Harvey was being very gross and inappropriate, predatory with Georgia, and she ended up running away from home at one point as well, but she came back. Alice was one of those women that was a firm believer in stand by your man. So it's said that she would often ignore her children's concerns and ignored the abuse of her children. I've never been in this severity of a situation like this with abuse, so I'm not going to say anything other than I get where she was coming from, but come on, you know, it's it's your kids. You got to you got to get out of there. You can't you can't be doing this. By this point, Harvey ends up getting some of his own vehicles and he's driving around more on the open road. Alice and Georgia were afraid to ride in the car with him because he was often known to be a little speed racer. He would go 90 miles an hour pretty much everywhere he went. From 1969 to 1972, he actually got seven speeding tickets. On October 15, 1972, the body of a 19-year-old girl named Leslie Laura Brock was found in Washington with a witness having seen her enter Harvey's truck. She was beaten to death with a hammer. Awful. Just a little over six months later, it's May 1st, 1973, when 15-year-old Kathy Sue Miller answered a help-wanted ad from Harvey for employment at his gas station. So basically, he was leasing this gas station and had multiple employees there. And he always had these help-wanted ads in the paper because there was a very high turnover rate of employees there. Gee, I wonder why. So Kathy answered this help wanted ad and she was really excited. She had been wanting to save up money, you know, make money of her own, start getting independence. I can totally relate to that. I had my first job when I was 14 and I remember when I got my first paycheck and it felt like such a big deal back then. It was like a couple hundred dollars, but I I get it. So, you know, she was really excited. She was interviewed over the phone and basically assured by Harvey that she would get the job. And Harvey told her to meet him at a certain corner the following day. Not at his gas station, but 
at a random street corner. So when Kathy tells her mother about this, Kathy's mother advised her not to and, you know, didn't think it was a good idea. They had also recently heard about the death of a woman under mysterious circumstances nearby. This was Laura Brock, the 19-year-old that I mentioned earlier. But like I said, Kathy was really excited. She wanted to start getting some independence. Her family friend, Mark, was with her just before she met Harvey. And that was the last time that anyone would ever see her alive. Kathy's body was discovered later by two boys who were hiking in Everett, Washington, near a reservation. She was nude and wrapped in plastic. Her skull had multiple holes in it the size of nickels, and she was eventually identified through dental records since she was in an advanced state of decomposition. Kathy's mother was understandably beside herself. She had convinced herself that Kathy would turn up. She even bought a 10-speed bike that Kathy had been wanting. She just um, thought she was going to come home, you know? So heartbreaking. So police highly suspected Harvey in both of these murders, but they were unable to arrest him due to lack of physical evidence. Harvey claimed he didn't know anything about Kathy's murder or her disappearance, and he said he had been working the entire day. He also said he had an ex-employee that could verify this story. Police did notice, though, upon questioning Harvey, that his face began to twitch more profusely, and he began to noticeably sweat. So police ended up contacting this female employee who claimed Harvey was, (laughs) in fact, not at work all day. And she said he had gone somewhere for around six hours, telling her that he was going to go pick up auto parts. She also said he arrived back to the store, and when he got back, he surprisingly unloaded no auto parts from his truck. So clearly he was lying, and the police hounded Harvey intensely. And his face was even put in the newspaper as a suspect. So all eyes are on Harvey at this point. Harvey also refused to take a polygraph test, which we know today polygraph tests are bunk science. They don't mean anything. But back then, they were very commonly used. And it was incredibly suspicious when you refused to take one. Harvey Kerrigan's family also began to turn on him at this point. So they're suspecting him as well. And basically, everything's boiling up. Harvey's wife, Alice, because he's still married at this point, ended up choosing to be there for Billy and Georgia, and she starts to give information to the police while continuing to live with Harvey. So she's basically doing all of this without Harvey knowing. Harvey's brother also confronted him about the murder, and Harvey tried to prove his innocence and that, you know, he wouldn't hurt a soul. How, you might ask? by beating the shit out of his brother. (laughs) Oh my god. So his brother was fine, luckily. That's the only reason that I'm laughing, but... (sighs) Harvey's family decides to start cooperating with the police and talk to them. Things get so bad that Harvey ended up leaving the city. So he basically runs away from all of this, and this was during a time period that 
Police didn't communicate with each other really across state lines, so he's free as a bird. At some point, he ended up in Solanto County, California, because he got a speeding ticket there on June 20th. This is also in the vicinity where half of a dozen women had been murdered in the past two years, but there was nothing solid to connect him, or anyone for that matter, with these murders. It's believed during this time that he was on his way cross-country, planning to eventually return to his old stopping grounds, Minneapolis. One month after the murder of Kathy Sue Miller, on June 28, 1973, Harvey attacked a woman named Mary Townsend. The 47-year-old had been waiting at a bus stop when she was knocked unconscious from behind with a blunt object. Eventually, she did come to. She regained consciousness, but she found herself trapped inside of Harvey's truck with him. And the truck was moving at this point. He tried to force Mary to perform oral sex on him. And she was fortunately able to escape by jumping out of the moving vehicle. He did not go back for her. She was able to get away. And within days, he was arrested, but it was for assaulting his wife, Alice. Alice left him in the spring of 1973. She had finally had enough. And when Harvey was arrested, he was put in prison for Alice's assault, where he remained for three months. And during this time, Harvey would write many letters and poetry to Alice, begging for her to take him back. Apparently, he was known to be very charming, at least by the women he dated. So he definitely was socially aware enough at this point where he knew how to charm and manipulate women. So now it's September 9th, 1973. This time, Harvey picks up a 13-year-old girl. Her name was Jerry Billings, and she was hitchhiking, which, again, I've said this in past episodes, but hitchhiking was incredibly normalized and common during this time period, and I want to be very clear, I am not victim-blaming at all. I am just stating the fact that she was hitchhiking. Some of the sources I found said that she was trying to get to her boyfriend's house. I mean, she's 13. That's really, that's really young for having a boyfriend, but... Anyway, not at all her fault. He, Harvey, would end up picking Jerry up, and he beat her and assaulted her in his truck. And But then he did let her go. Some sources that I found said he assaulted her with the handle of his hammer. Yeah. So disgusting. It took her several months to be able to come to terms with what happened and be able to report the crime. Completely understandable. Clearly, she went through something absolutely horrible, and I'm glad she physically survived, at least. In May of 1974, Harvey finally stops trying to contact Alice Johnson. She hadn't been very responsive to his letters, and Harvey moves on. He ends up marrying a woman named Eileen Hunley, who was 29 years old. And um, they met while she was hitchhiking. He picked her up. Isn't that romantic? 
Eileen Hunley was a daycare worker and she was very religious. She was very involved in her church. They ended up, or sorry, I think I said they were married. They ended up dating. He moved in with Eileen in Minneapolis for a few months, but just a few months later, it's August, and Eileen at this point has caught on to the fact that Harvey's a terrible person. She's sick of his shit. So she worked up the courage to leave him. It's on August 10th, and Eileen Hunley disappears. Five weeks later, in Sherborne County near Zimmerman, police discovered the body of Eileen Hunley. Harvey had beaten her to death with a hammer. Her skull was crushed. And as if that wasn't horrible enough, evidence was also found later that Eileen had been sexually assaulted with a tree branch. I mean, there's, there's just no words. Just the level of depravity. Such a sick mind. And this is where things really, really, really seem to escalate, okay? So, here we go. September 8th, 1974. Harvey picks up a pair of girls, 17-year-old June Lynch and 16-year-old Lisa King, who were hitchhiking. He offered money to the girls, claiming he needed help to fetch a car. It was stranded in a rural area. He claimed that the car belonged to his son and had run out of gas. So he took them in his car. He drove them outside of town. And this is when he attacked them both with a hammer. Lisa managed to escape, but June was unfortunately beaten to death. Just one week later, it's September 14th, 1974, and Harvey picks up another woman named Gwen Burton from a Sears parking lot, and her engine had died in her car, so Harvey was pretending to be a good Samaritan. He told her that she could come in the truck with him, they could drive to his house nearby, he could get some tools, and they could come back and fix the truck, or fix her car. So Gwen Burton, being a, a good person, trusted him, and he drove off with her to a desolate area. He ripped her clothing, he beat her, he sexually assaulted her, and choked her to the point of being semi-unconscious. And then he raped her using the handle of his hammer. He dumped her unconscious in a field near a ravine and left her. She eventually regained consciousness and she managed to crawl to a local, a local highway. After crawling out of a six foot hole and 300 yards to the highway, and this is while she was severely bleeding. She had multiple broken ribs. She also had a skull fracture. And she would later say she could feel bits of skull piercing her brain. Clearly, she's running off of pure adrenaline. And she does crawl to the highway. She would later say that when she first regained consciousness, she woke up in a pool of blood. And she felt like she wanted to go back to sleep, but she thought of her sister, who had just had a baby girl, and she really wanted to meet her niece. So she wanted this so badly, she said this helped her gather the strength to 
crawl her way out and get help. When she reached the highway, a passing car stopped and was able to get her help, so she did survive. Just a few days later, on September 18th, 1974, the same day Eileen Hunley's body would be recovered, Harvey picked up Sally Versoy and Diane Flynn. He used the same ruse about needing to go fetch a car, and he lured them into his car. And the first question he asked Sally and Diane is if he would rather he rape them or, like, if they would rather he rape them or kill them. So generous to offer them a choice. Not. He forced them to perform oral sex on him. He beat them. But they both managed to escape when he was forced to stop for gasoline because he was running very low. Two days later, on September 20th, 18-year-old Kathy Schultz did not return on schedule from her college classes, and a missing persons bulletin was issued by the police. Kathy Schultz's corpse was found the next day, on September 21st, by hunters in a cornfield 40 miles from Minneapolis. And I'm realizing as I'm doing this episode, I'm saying Minneapolis sometimes, and it's it's Minneapolis. 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 Oops. As in other cases, Kathy's skull had been destroyed by crushing hammer blows. So... All these... All these murders, all these assaults, and fucking finally police in Minnesota get together with police in Washington and decide to compare crimes. So, within just a few days of doing this, on September 24th, Harvey was arrested. And this was because Gwen Burton was able to give a description of his car. This was the woman that he picked up from the Sears parking lot police were able to present a lineup to surviving victims. Victims easily picked Harvey out of a lineup. I mean, he's got insane forearms. He's very distinct. This begs the question, though, if so many police officers suspected him and they needed evidence, with all of these survivors, why wasn't a lineup done sooner? I don't know. There could very well be a reason, but just something I thought about. So when he was arrested, police found a U.S. map in his possession with 181 red circles circled throughout various points of the map, primarily in the northern U.S. and in Canada. These circles indicated specific locations in which he had applied for work and purchased vehicles, while others were very interesting locations, very convenient places that he marked. So let's talk about some of them, shall we? Many of these marked locations linked to unsolved murders and attacks, like all of the horrible ones I just told you about, among others. One of the locations was where Laura Brock had been kidnapped in Washington. Another marked the place where the body of a murdered female was found in North Dakota in April of 1973. And another location marked the exact intersection where Mary Townsend was assaulted at the bus station. 
So now we're going to get into all of the legal proceedings. Harvey's first sentencing was on February 19th, 1975, and this was for attempted murder and aggravated sodomy of Gwen Burton. During the trial, Harvey tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And this is where we get to the really, really good part. You want to hear his excuse, guys? So Harvey claims that God instructed him to, quote, kill whores and harlots. And Gwen Burton was a whore, so she had to die. (laughs) And um, his defense was rejected. Everyone saw through that immediately. Harvey also testified that he was sorry he didn't succeed in killing Gwen because God told him to humiliate and kill her. He even said that he would try to fill that command now if he had the chance. Just completely sick. Disgusting. <laughs> if Gwen Burton were my loved one, I there's no way I could have been sitting in that courtroom silent when he said that shit. I would have had to have been thrown out because I would have lost my mind. The jury ended up finding him guilty of indecent liberties, sodomy of a child, and two counts of aggravated sodomy, resulting in a maximum sentence of 40 years. This is the maximum sentence that can be provided according to Minnesota law. But he was also eventually going to be tried and convicted for the assault of 13-year-old Jerry Billings, the murder of 29-year-old Eileen Hunley, one of his wives, girlfriends, I think girlfriend, uh, and the murder of Kathy Schultz. He was also convicted at some point for the murder of Laura Showalter. But kind of in between all of this, it's March 7th, 1975, and Harvey was taken to a mental health hospital for a psychological evaluation. So he undergoes a lot of psychological testing, and he was diagnosed with severe antisocial personality disorder. During the trials for the other victims, Harvey's attorneys would argue that he should not be found guilty because of the insanity plea. They argued that Harvey couldn't understand the nature of the acts or determine right from wrong, which is how the insanity plea works. A juror told a local newspaper that the panel felt Harvey was mentally ill to a degree, which I agree with, but he also knew what he was doing and was capable of judging his own actions. And I agree. I mean, we can see this. He would flee from states. He would, you know, be tossed back and forth multiple times from place to place. He probably was very familiar with all the roads he was on. It seems like he knew where to hide victims pretty well because it would often take them weeks to be found. He left very little physical evidence, at least for the technology they had during that time period. He didn't insert himself into the investigation to, you know, make him an obvious suspect. It it seems that he, he was very capable, like he knew what he was doing. And he was able to recognize that it was wrong because he would flee these places and he would get very scared when he was being interrogated by police. 
which I feel like if you're showing fear or any type of heightened emotion like that, you are indicating to them that you, you know that you did something wrong. You know that you're guilty, right? Douglas Thomas, who was one of Harvey's attorneys, even referred to Harvey during court as being a shell of a human being, a homicidal maniac, and these are his words, stainless steel schizophrenic, which I don't know what that means. Maybe like really hard on the outside, crazy on the inside, but from what I could find, Harvey was never diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, anyway, as a result of these legal proceedings, 30 years was added to Harvey Kerrigan's sentence, and this was for the assault of Jerry Billings. 40 years was added for Eileen Hunley's murder, and 40 years was added for Kathy Schultz. This was considered a life in prison sentence by Minnesota law, but again, they're adding all these years on, but ultimately it's all going to come down to a maximum sentence of 40 years even though there's 150 years that has been put on like all these sentences. So hopefully that makes sense. But in the end, Harvey was convicted for the murders of three victims, Laura Showalter, Catherine Schultz, and Eileen Hunley, as well as the assaults of Gwen Burton and Jerry Billings. We know he murdered women and girls in Alaska, Washington, and Minnesota. And as we just heard, there were many more victims. I'm sure that there's more in California and Canada as well, hence the locations on his map and the history of us knowing he's been in California before. He got speeding tickets there. And he was charged, you know, in in five of these cases. So we know there are many more. And just like in a lot of true crime cases, there are all these poor families that never got justice for their loved ones. When he was eventually given the life imprisonment sentence, this was uh, during Eileen Hunley's case, and he was sent to the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Bayport, also known as Oak Park Heights. I also found photos of him that I'll post on the Instagram page, and of course you'll see them pop up in the YouTube video. They, you know, took his mugshot as he's going into this prison, and his eyes are just fish eyes. They are black holes. He's horrifying looking. He's disgusting looking. I also found some sources that said he used a lot of intimidation tactics in prison. So like when people would come to interview him or when prison guards would walk by, he was often known to like put his arms on the bars of his cell and he would like pull himself up and hold himself there and he would even do like one-armed pull-ups to show like how strong he was and intimidate people. In 1997, Harvey Karagnan developed prostate cancer, but he survived. And from what I could find, he remained at the same prison for a very long time, or at least he ended up back there at some point because he died at the Oak Park Heights Prison, also known as the Minnesota Correctional Facility, in March of 2023. I got varying dates from different sources, so we're just going to say early to mid-March 2023. So he, like, just died very recently. And that's part of why Amanda requested this story, because, you know, she thought it'd be a good one to cover since he had just died. 
He was 95 years old when he died, so I would assume he died from natural causes. And he was the oldest prisoner in U.S. history. Okay, guys, so we're about at the end here, but I know that was a very heavy story, so I thought I could end this episode on a a bit of a lighter note. I found this ridiculous and what I think is pretty hilarious interview of Hari Karagnan during his time in prison uh, in Minnesota, and I found this on Murderpedia. It looks like the interview originally came from skcentral.com. You can read the full interview on Murderpedia. I'm just going to read you some parts that I thought were pretty hilarious. So I'll first read the question that was asked to him and then his lovely responses. How tall are you and how much do you weigh? Six foot two, 270 pounds, down from 289. Both are much too heavy. Okay, dude, just say how much you weigh. (laughs) They then asked him if he had any kids. He said three all deceased, one by gunshot, one from cancer, and the other from a dope overdose. Lovely. What is your most treasured honor? To be loved by a good woman. Aw, he's a romantic, guys, come on. What is your favorite meal? Almost anything except seafood, which makes me ill. I cannot stand the iodine. (laughs) Describe your ideal evening. His response is really confusing here. So he answers in two parts. So an evening where he's out of prison, he's free, would be an evening home with his family, which what are you going to do? Are you going to beat them up? That's your lovely ideal of an evening? Because that's all you did. And then his idea of a, a good evening in prison, he said, having a good letter to read and to answer to, and to top it off with a good book or movie. Okay. <laughs> this one's really weird. So <laughs> the interviewer says, nobody knows you are dot, dot, dot. So like wanting him to fill in the blank. And he says, and they never will. <laughs> so nobody knows you are and they never will. (laughs) What the fuck? Okay. If you were president, what would you do? He says, just be president and would probably be ashamed of how I attained the office. Okay, dude. What is your advice to kids? Harvey's response? Do not have parents. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's good advice, sir. What are your pet peeves? Arrogant and stupid police officers. (laughs) If you were an animal, what would you be? He said, a human being. Okay, so I included two more questions. The interviewer asks, how do you view yourself? Good question, fascinating question. So Harvey says, a most ordinary and compassionate person. LOL, whose interests are such that I would not ever again get into trouble. Not because I am better than I was, but because I learned I was a good person and how to maintain that status. 
If that is not the most in denial bullshit I've ever heard in my life, I don't know what is. Like this guy would never stop. Okay, last one. <laughs> the interviewer says, finish this sentence. I consider myself. And Harvey says, an above average intelligent person who, if my training and luck had been different, would have been a most successful person in either the education or business fields. <laughs> so there you go, everybody. Uh, Minnesota, Washington, Canada. Hopefully you guys can sleep a little bit easier tonight because um, this psychopath is dead. Thank God. I hope you guys enjoyed the way that this story was told. I don't want to say enjoyed this story because it's a very dark story, but you guys know what I mean. Uh, that is the story of Harvey Karagnan, also known as the Want Ad Killer, also known as Harvey the Hammer. And wow, what a piece of shit. But Amanda, thank you for recommending the story. I really enjoyed researching it. And like I said, I hope you guys enjoyed the way this story was told. If you did, please leave a five-star review on whatever platform that you're listening on. You can also hop on Apple or Stitcher and type out a review. That would be so incredible. And I'd love to read your review on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can keep seeing my lovely face and you can, you know, keep up with when new video content has been released. Follow the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Don't forget to check out my socials, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, those are both Perplexity Mystery Podcast. And you can, you know, DM me on Instagram with any story requests or crazy stories you want to share with me. Or you can email me, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail. I would love to read your stories on the podcast, so keep the requests coming. If you want to support the podcast, you can also check out the show notes in this episode. You can check out my Buy Me a Coffee link, or you can also check out the podcast support link. Thank you guys so much for listening. You are all amazing. Go do something lighthearted. <laughs> Go do something that makes you relaxed and happy after listening to this episode, please. Uh, hope you guys have a great week and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.